Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host Theo Wan. Welcome to season two of the podcast where we are going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week I will talk to a new guest and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, we would love for you to subscribe and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Away From Keyboard. AFK is a lifestyle brand that believes in reconnecting with humanity and our planet. Whether that's tossing a disc on the weekends or hanging out by a campfire, they're dedicated to get you to explore and grow in your own backyard. Join the adventure and check out their website at www.awayfromkeyboard.co. That's www.awayfromkeyboard.co. Now with all that done, let's go. This week's guest is Allison Fisher. Allison is the coach for Quebec Iris, a women's team that competes both in the Canadian and U.S. club series, as well as a coach for Team Canada. She has won a bronze, silver, and gold medal at the Canadian Ultimate Championships coaching with Iris, and she coached the U24 Team Canada women's team in 2019 to a bronze medal. She is slated to coach on the Team Canada women's team for the upcoming 2021 World Ultimate and Guts Championships. Prior to coaching, Allison had an accomplished club career, playing from 1998 to 2016. In that span, she represented Canada three times at the World Ultimate and Guts Championships and twice at the World Ultimate Club Championships. She has won three Canadian gold medals, three World Silver medals, one World's Gold medal, and a USA Ultimate Women's Masters Gold medal. She was named the 2013 CUC Finals MVP and has won numerous Sport Quebec awards as a coach with Iris. She has given back to the Ultimate community by being on the Spirit of the Game Committee for Ultimate Canada for five years and has been on the Board of Directors for both Ultimate Canada and Ultimate Grand Montreal. Here is my interview with Allison Fisher. So I'm here with Allison Fisher coach of iris and also an accomplished club player herself pretty excited for this interview so allison how are you doing today i'm doing great aside from the fact that it's a little rainy outside classic fall weather in montreal yeah classic fall weather in uh, toronto as well the rain will probably hit us uh, soon but you're also a former uh, commentator as well so we both have that in common so that's uh, a little fun tidbit as well for the audience but we're going to start with your journey, so can you tell the audience how you got into Ultimate, first of all, as a player, and then eventually as a coach? Sure. Well, it's, as we discussed earlier, somewhat of a long story, so I'll try to keep it brief. In 1996, I was uh, walking down the street in my neighborhood, and this guy that I knew who lived uh, down the street from me pulled up in his car and <laughs> leaned out the window and was basically like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Uh, not much. It's like, great. Uh, I'm missing girls. I need a girl for my, uh, ultimate team. And of course, this guy was kind of cute. And so I was like, sure. What is ultimate? <laughs> uh, so I went out. Uh, I'd always played a ton of sports when I was a kid and growing up in high school. I kind of did the like three sports a year thing and, and would switch regularly. So any new sport challenge sounded great to me. So I showed up at the field. This was in the time where in Montreal there were, I think, 20 teams on one night for league. And now there's, you know, league every night and, I don't know, hundreds of teams. And I basically got got thrown on the field. Run around was the instruction. Run around. Don't touch anybody else. And don't forget to stack. Okay. Did no zero clues as to what that meant. But we uh, played an entire season, uh, summer season, and I really loved it. We lost every single game. So 20 of 20 games, we went 0 and 20. Fantastic. And then that fall, I started at Middlebury. And it just so happened that the first day I was there, I was carrying this like mini fridge up a hill to my dorm. And there were a bunch of people out there throwing a frisbee around. And one of the guys came over and was like, hey, do you want help with that? totally random coincidence. I was like, sure, that would be super nice. He helped me carry it up. We started chatting. Turns out he's like, oh, you you should totally come out and play frisbee with us. We have frisbee teams at Middlebury. And I was thinking I was going to go be on the swim team or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'll come tomorrow. So I show up the next day and basically everyone 
already there is like, oh my god, you're the girl from Montreal who knows how to play Ultimate. <laughs> like, they were really excited. My one summer session of Ultimate seemed to be a... So you're a legend already. I, I quickly learned that I knew no things about Ultimate, that uh, one summer of League basically taught you nothing. Because even at that time, so this was in yeah, 1996, there were kids in from the States who played in high school. So... There were a couple of guys there, James Emerson and Ian Schnee to be specific, who basically taught me everything I know about Ultimate. And I spent three years at Middlebury and we had practice every day after school when we were not going to tournaments in the fall and in the spring. And then in the winter, we would practice in the field house. This was, you know, pre nice turf. It was, you know, kind of not, not very nice astroturfy kind of round. But we'd go there and we'd, we'd just play uh, mixed all the time. And uh, spring break, we'd drive down to uh, Tybee Island in Georgia and we'd, they'd have a tournament there. And then we'd drive back and we'd stop at Philly and there would be a tournament there. So, And basically, every time you got out of the car to fuel up or whatever, everyone would get out of the car and start throwing. Right. And I now coaching, I just don't see these things anymore. Like rarely will you have a bunch of kids get out of the car and start throwing in the parking lot while you're waiting to fuel up your car. But this was like a regular car. Like throwing was a thing that you did all the time. You carried a disc between your classes. I mean, we all lived on campus, too. So maybe that was easier. But the, the amount of throwing that we did was I don't see that in kids these days from my experience. Now, I'm obviously not always with some of the kids that I coach now, but it's, it doesn't seem to be the same type of dedication. So that was it. So uh, when I came back to Montreal uh, during the summers in 98, I basically got recruited to come and play on the women's team. And then the next year, they asked if I wanted to be the captain. And then I basically captained from 1999 until I had my kids in 2000, 2008, 2010. And then... I got back into playing, well, I played a couple of, I still played in the fall series. During the kids' time, I still played fall series, but I wouldn't commit to the full season. And then in 2013, actually, a woman from Toronto, Mandy, decided that she really wanted to get a women's master's division going. So a couple of the Storm players, which was the elite Montreal team for a long time, decided, okay, you know what, if we're going to commit to this, we need a good core to commit, and then let's do it. Why not? And we had a great time doing it, and we won at Nationals in 2013. So we got to go represent Canada because there was only one women's team sent. And then we won World Championships in 2014. So that was sort of the apex of all of the coaching as a player and playing that, that had happened up to that point. And then 2016, basically retired after that in 2014. And, but somehow, about two months later, got strong-armed back into coming so that we could play at CUC in 2015 to win, to go in 2016 and actually play at World Ultimate and Guts Championship. And so we did that. We were unsuccessful the second time at beating the U.S. in the finals. They, they had a better game plan than us, I think, in the end. They had, uh, the coach told me after that he had really studied our, uh, our 2014 playbook in order to figure out how to beat us in 2016. Then I officially retired and I felt good about it. So I was like, okay, I'm done. And uh, I took about six months and then it was like, okay, but even if I'm done playing, how am I going to continue to be involved in the sport? And so it was suggested that I apply to coach Iris because the coach, Mathieu Bordolo, had decided that he didn't want to coach anymore. He had other projects that he wanted to focus on. And I wasn't convinced that I was going to be able to go straight from playing to coaching at the beginning, but in the end, it worked out pretty well. So, yeah, long, long career. Uh, we could spend hours talking about there, Allison. So we're going to jump into coaching now. So Iris obviously has been very successful both in the Canadian series and then also qualifying for U.S. Nationals. So what do you feel you bring to them as a coach? What did your playing experiences teach you to now lead you to be a successful coach? It's a very interesting question. Um, I think over time, since I was thrown into the, the captainship so early in my career, I had a lot of time to figure out and or be told what works and what doesn't work when you're in a leadership position. I mean, there's so many things that go, go on behind the scenes as a leader that the majority of the team doesn't see. They don't see all the hours and hours of hard work that you put into it. All they see is they're not getting called on the line when they're on the field, right? 
and you as possibly the captain of the team are getting called on the line or calling yourself on the line. So I learned over time that what's really important is that you have to actually get to know each of your players because not everybody thinks in the same way as you. I was always the type of player where, you know, it's a double game point and you're starting on D and I'm like, put me out there. I am going to get this job done. Right. That, that was my mentality. Like I, I, I don't, for sure, there were times where I was a little bit nervous. For example, 2013, when we were at the U.S. Women's Masters Championship. So I was playing with Godiva, legendary Boston team that sort of predated Brood Squad. So, but all amazing players, still amazing players. A lot of them were still playing club women's. And we're playing against basically the equivalent of Godiva on the San Francisco side. So Fury. And we're playing in this this final, and it is double game point, and we are starting on defense. And I get called on the line, and uh, Vy Chow, also legendary athlete, both in Canada and the U.S., has played on every amazing team. And and she just gives this little chat, like, "All right, let's just go get it done. Like, no big deal. Like, we know what we're gonna do, you know." And uh, that was probably the one time that I can remember thinking, like. All right, it's going to be okay, you know? But so what I learned over time is that like many people don't want to be in that situation. They don't, as much as they love playing competitive ultimate, there's something about being in a high pressure situation where their brain goes, don't mess up instead of let's get this done, right? So the phrasing becomes negative. So then all you're thinking is, I'm, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to be the one who makes a mistake. I don't want to be the one who doesn't get that D block. I don't want to be the one who doesn't make the throw or the catch, whatever it is. And then, so that sort of spirals into you start playing tighter and you probably aren't going to end up being the one who makes the mistake because you're focusing on that. But I, it took me a long time to learn that, that not everyone comes to the game in the same, with the same uh, assumptions or the same mindset, like, let's go win this game. And so over time, as a coach and as a player, I've, I've come to learn that like, okay, you really need to get to know how each player approaches the game, what their history is, what their, not necessarily weaknesses and strengths are on the field, but how to change the dialogue that is going on in their head to make it so that everybody is focused on the, I don't want to say the right things, but the things that are going to be the most successful as a team. Um, and I think it, that, that that was probably the biggest lesson that I ever learned. And it, it was in part due to um, the mental preparation well, she's a coach now, uh, Guylaine Girard. She coached the Royal a couple of years ago. And she was the one who was like, hey, Fish, not everybody thinks like you. Not everybody goes out on the field and thinks, I'm, I'm just going to get this done. They think, I don't want to make a mistake. So I think knowing that, bringing that to the teams that I coach in terms of really getting to know my players and as people, not, you know, because as much as Ultimate seems like it's... <laughs> Our, our life when we're playing it in, in it. I think this pandemic probably has shown us that actually ultimately is really not necessarily our life. So it's important that, to me at least, that our players are successful in as many facets of their life as possible and they have the tools that they can take to go forward even when they're no longer playing. What questions I frequently get as a coach for Iris is that why do some of the best players in Quebec not necessarily play with us and how do you manage that? Or what can you do to get them back to playing with you? And I, I have a hard time answering that question because I was a player that went and played elsewhere also. You know, I spent a couple of years playing in Ottawa. We played a bunch of combo teams. I've played U.S. Masters with the U.S. team. And had Vintage not won in 2013 Canadian Nationals, I would have gone with the U.S. team to Worlds. So how can I turn around and tell players who are making decisions based on what they think is best for them to get different experiences? How can I turn around and say, no, don't do that? Like, I'm happy if you want to do that. If if you are coached by me and then you move on and, and play on a bigger team, fantastic. That's amazing. I, I don't – I hope one day that you're going to come back to Quebec – or wherever it is that you live and, and give back to your community, of course. But I, 
but I don't want to hold players back. I don't think that, I mean, it's imp super important that there is team culture and you're dedicated to your team and you love your team. But if you move to a different place or you decide to go play in a different team for a variety of reasons, great. I hope that you learn from that coach and those players and get even better than you already are. You know, I don't, I don't feel that it's necessary that you have to stay in one place. And I, and I, especially in Ultimate, maybe these days it's less the case, but in the old days, you really had to go outside of your smaller market in order to find players to challenge you if you were a stronger player on your team. Lots of uh, insight there, Allison. Do, do appreciate that. And we're going to talk a little bit about team culture in a, in a later segment there. But uh, in terms of getting Iris to where you think and maybe the leadership thinks that they can get to, what are some things that you've done and implemented as a coach to try to, to get Iris to that next level? I know you've been very successful at the CUC level, also qualifying for U.S. Nationals recently. So what are some things that you're trying to implement to get them to the next level? I mean, one of the, I don't want to say issues that we face in Quebec, but we are what is considered a provincial team. So we don't have practice together every week, which makes it a lot more challenging. Even if you look at like the model of the U.S. elite teams where they practice together on the weekends, they also do pod practice together in during the week and other things like that. They train together and all those things. So the the fact that we have players from across Quebec makes it a lot more challenging in some aspects in the, especially as a coach where I, you know, the players in Montreal, I go out every week and I, I'm there with them and I'm coaching and, you know, giving feedback and whatever. But the players who are in Quebec City or in Sherbrooke or uh, Yeah, I don't see them as much as I see the players in Montreal. So definitely a challenge. We do have weekend practices. We don't have weekend practices every weekend, which we've been trying over time to push a little further. Another thing is obviously we have a ton of amazing younger players coming up and we're super excited about them and we love our juniors and like the, you know, 18 to, you know, 23, four-year-olds who are so much better than and will be so much better than anybody who has come before. But of course, you know, they're students and this is always a problem with an elite team. You know, first of all, people don't, money and school, and it's really hard as a coach in a sport where no one gets paid to play the sport. Coaches don't really get paid enough money to actually make a livelihood out of it. To dedicate for anybody, to get to pay all these time to practice to train to go to tournaments to take weekends all summer long and then the fall when you have your your CUC and all those things it's very difficult to have the same level of buy-in and commitment from every single player and we've definitely noticed that on Iris I mean you want everybody to be able to be 100% committed to be at every single thing to you know train on their own as much as possible but you also have to be cognizant that, you know, some of these people need to work a nine to five job and then they have school and then they're going to be playing ultimate. And they're probably, you know, at the top of your list of talented players. So you have this, you know, debate within your team culture. Do you, you know, reward those players and give them a lot of PT because they're possibly more talented or, you know, more athletic or have better skill sets? But they're not necessarily at everything versus the players who are incredibly dedicated, but may have less experience and or, you know, less overall talent or skill sets. How do you balance that in a team culture? And I think, you know, part of it is making sure that everybody understands that everyone brings something and everybody's situation is different. And at different stages of life, it will be different too. You have, we have incredibly dedicated captains who are, who are constantly, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of how much you can actually give to a team. And that's, that's an amazing example, but I think it also puts a lot of pressure on those younger kids to, to feel like they are also contributing. So I guess, I don't know if, it, I definitely don't think I, I'm winning at this battle. I think I, I just have, I'm aware of it. So, you know, we're constantly adjusting based on what is happening, 
who's playing on which world's team. You know, the stronger that Iris gets, the more players we send to various world's teams. And when those players are at are playing for two teams, like I can even as a coach, I I found it very difficult to coach two teams in one year. So coaching Iris and also Team Canada, luckily I had some overlap, but it was very difficult to to be fully present for both teams and all the players. And what we did was we changed who was we made three head coaches that year instead of having me as the head coach with two assistant coaches so that no matter who was there, there was always a quote-unquote head coach, which seemed to work pretty well. How are we going to bring our ourselves to the next level? I don't know. I don't think we have a direct way forward. I think the fact that we don't all live in the same city is a problem that I don't is, think is readily fixable. But the dedication and passion and uh, love for the sport that these kids coming up have is unparalleled. And I think that if we're able to really work at the juniors level and build those kids up in terms of their fundamentals, so when they get to RS, we're not focusing so much on the fundamentals. Now, as a coach, you're always focusing on the fundamentals. I think that's more important than pretty much anything. You know, if you do the fundamentals better than everyone else, you're going to be fine. So yeah, I mean, I think it, with with Quebec, it's an interesting scenario. We have had in the past couple of years players from outside of Quebec who are interested to come to Quebec to play with us. And I think that's an amazing thing. It's great to have, to have outside players want to come and join you. And it adds a new dynamic and and I think it makes everybody better because you're challenged in different ways and I hope that that continues to happen that more people say like hey Iris seems to be doing really well and I think it's not so much the successes on the field and I don't think it's it's not about winning (laughs) Carla and I always fight about it's not about winning it's not about winning it's about building for the longer term and I think my vision when I came to Iris was I don't really care about how we're going to do in the next couple of years. You know, yes, we have players who are on the team who've had a lot of success, so they're going to want to continue to have success. And we're going to do our best to give everybody those opportunities. But the point is that we want to build this team that people want to come and play for. You know, we so we do a lot of outreach. Pretty much all the Iris players coach at some level, uh, whether it's teeny tiny kids, you know, like the 6 to 12-year-olds, or, or they they coach in, in CJEP or they, you know, they coach university. They all give back to our community because what we want is all these kids to look up to us to say, one day I want to play on that team. That team looks really fun. And they're also successful. Those are some wise words. There. I'm going to give you an opportunity to now give some more uh, wise words, some advice to aspiring coaches. So maybe someone who's played for a while and now wants to get back and coach, what would you say, uh, maybe a couple tips that you would give them to get their coaching career started? Rule number one, this is probably my only rule, coaching your friends is really hard. And the more you can set yourself up to coach in a situation where you're not best buddies with the people on the field, the easier it becomes to separate yourself from player and or player captain like you most coaches end up coming from that sort of background to coach where you can make decisions. Of course, you take your player's feelings into consideration and all that, but you can remove the, yeah, but we're super good friends outside of the this scenario. If that means coaching littler kids or high school kids or, you know, to start out, do it, get some experience. And then you can build up to you know, coaching at a higher level. I think I was lucky with Iris in that there were some players that I had played with uh, when I started coaching, but the more we go on, the younger they seem to get, you know, like I'm, I can be their mom now. And so there's a nice separation between like, I love my players and I, I, I'm there for them no matter what. I hope they would think that at least, but you know, we're not also like hanging out outside of the field and going for beers and things like that. Like, I just don't do that with my players anymore. And I think that really makes a, a, di- a difference between being the coach, 
who has to make these hard decisions. But, but like one of the hardest things as a coach is, is having players understand that the decisions that you're making are for in the best interest of the team, because no matter, no matter how many times you say or show or, or explain that it's not about you not getting to do this. It's about, I need these players on the field. It still feels personal. So once you get some experience coaching where that, that personal issue is at least one step removed, the easier it is to then develop your abilities to coach at all levels, I think at least. And the second piece of advice would be talk to other coaches. Other coaches are going through, you know, it's like when, when you're a player that you want to get better, you go find other players and you ask them questions or you throw with them or you say, can you show me how you throw that flick 50 yards, whatever it is. It's the same with coaches. I mean, Carla and I talk. I don't know, I would say at least once a week about whatever. John Hayduke's now in Montreal, so we're having chats. I, I talk to Alex Davis pretty regularly. It's not always about ultimate, but I find it important that, you know, I, I get feedback on because it's very hard as a coach to get feedback. And so, you know, you have a problem, you discuss it with other coaches. You're not sure what to do. You discuss it with other coaches. You want to come up with a drill. You ask other coaches, hey, I, I came up with this drill. What do you think? And the, the two coaches that I coach on Iris with, uh, Isa and Audrey, the three of us talk all the time about our players, about strategies, about, hey, what do you think about this? And that's the easiest way to, I think, feel like you're being successful because you don't necessarily get the feedback from the players on how you're doing as a coach. It's an interesting dynamic of having, you, you want people to tell you how you're doing, but at the same time, they may or may not feel comfortable telling you how they think you're doing because possibly that is going to affect the, their PT, which it shouldn't, but it, you know, the, the, the impression could be that it might. I think I'm on my third suggestion. Yep, you're on tip three. <laughs> be willing to make mistakes and admit it. I mean, sometimes we, we, we come up with this great drill that we think is going to be so awesome and we see it in practice and we're just like, oh, no, this is not at all working. And so you, you have to be adaptable and willing to, you know, say, hey, actually, I don't think this is achieving what we wanted to achieve. I don't know all the things. I might have played 20 years of Ultimate, but I don't know all the things. And we're going to have to redo this or let's stop this and let's, you know, figure out a way that we could let's try this player here instead of here. Being able to show that you're vulnerable and, you know, doing have the best of intentions, but aren't going to be perfect goes a long way to making connections with your players. Awesome. Do appreciate all the advice there, Allison. We're going to move to day-to-day -day life here. So in terms of your coaching career, I know uh, we're recording still within the, the COVID-19 pandemic here, but what does your coaching life look like in a non-COVID year? What is your schedule looking like? How does your day-to-day -day look? Well, depends on if I'm coaching one team or two teams, but let's just say I'm coaching Iris. So... Basically, we run two practices a week in Montreal. So as I mentioned before, I won't have all my players there. One is more of a um, strength and conditioning running technique that I'm not always there for. A JP Riopad that will often run that part of the training for the girls. And then I would coach with one of the other coaches who also lives in Montreal on Wednesday. So on a Wednesday, probably on a Tuesday morning we will have the coaches will have a conversation we have an overall game plan for the year and based on where we are in that part of the season plus what we saw at our most recent full team practice and or what we learned from attending a tournament we'll make adjustments to what we're supposed to be working on that week and then we'll come up with a couple of drills and then we'll send it out to the players and say, hey, this is what we're going to be working on. We may or may not include all the drills because sometimes we like it to be a surprise and see how they work on their adaptability. Sometimes we don't. And then we'll run, our practice runs about two hours. And then the coaches will debrief afterwards, either on the drive home or the next morning. And then we'll be planning for whether we have a tournament that weekend or if we're going to have a full team practice travel, logistics, watching game tape, re-listening to podcasts. I mean, I probably spend, in season, I probably spend 20 hours a week on coaching when I'm just coaching one team. And that would involve talking to players, feedback for players. We try to give players feedback before and after every tournament if we can. And then on the side, you know, anytime there's uh, 
um, a practice. If we see something, we'll follow up with them. We'll take a couple, you know, screenshots or video and be like, hey, when you were throwing this throw, whatever. Because one of the most frequent comments that we get at the end of a season is, I didn't get enough feedback. So we spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time on feedback. And then maybe the coaches and the captains will have a chat depending on you know, what we think team culture is looking like. Do we need to work on something? What is our focus for the tournament coming up? And off season, I do a lot of also following up with my players, but more on a personal level, like, you know, how's school going? What's going on with this? I'm not necessarily so much ultimate related, although I do get a lot of ultimate questions like what can I work on? Or, you know, when I throw that IO flick and I'm stepping out here, how can I adjust? What can I work on indoors to make that better? I do a lot of reading. I have a full shelf of coaching books. So I always, I always, I'm always buying more coaching books because I really love them. Student of the game, though. That's good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just so interesting to read because, I mean, I, I'm an editor by career choice, right? I have two literary degrees. I don't well, – everything I've learned about coaching is from books or podcasts or my personal experience. It's not like I went to school for this. Although, in retrospect, I wish I had. In terms of the feedback you're giving to players, like, are you emailing? Is it like in a Google Doc that gets updated? Like, how does that look if you're able to share that? Well, we've done a couple of different things. So the coaches and captains tend to have Google Sheet that we do for feedback for each tournament. And we will, usually on our drive home from a tournament, the coaches will try to get in the same car. We'll arrange it like that so we can go through each player and figure out here's the feedback we want to give this player, this player, this player, the players, just to make sure that uh, we cover everybody, you know, something to work on and something that we really liked. We will have an overall doc that the coaches use depending on where we are with the season. And we've done it where each coach is responsible for a certain number of players. And those are the players that they're supposed to, you know, like follow up with on a regular basis. In 2019, we did messenger groups. So the coaches and each player were on a separate messenger group. And we would, it was a way to keep track and sort of have evidence of the feedback. For one player said something like, hey, I didn't get any feedback. And you can point to that and say, well, remember, we had all these conversations going on about, you know, and it was red. You can see their face. <laughs> That's right. Video. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can give feedback. We've tried hard to make sure that at least part of it is documented at all times so that we can always point to it and say, hey, remember when we did this? Because, you know, really everything is feedback. You're standing on the sidelines and someone makes a mistake and they come off and you ask them, hey, what do you, what do you think you could have done differently? That's feedback right there. I mean, you're not giving them the answer, but... It's still a conversation that you're having about that will help them improve, right? So we do spend a lot of time also reminding the players that anytime we're giving instruction or having a discussion that that's feedback. We're watching film, that's feedback. You're standing on the line, you're getting called to a plane and you're you're told, don't forget to do this, feedback, right? I think our, our mandate in 2019 was how much feedback can we give the players? But you also don't want to just give feedback for giving feedback. It actually has to have some kind of value. And whether that value... He manifests, you know, right there when the person goes, oh, yeah, right, I didn't step out on my flick. Or it manifests, uh, you know, six months later when all of a sudden they set up a cut and, and they're like, oh, my God, that was so easy to get open. Yes, I've only been saying that for, you know, 20 hours long length of time of how to set up a cut properly. Yeah, and I've seen... Uh, Iris in action. I remember at the 2018 CUCs there, and there's some unique things about your team culture or things that you do. I'm not sure if the audience knows, but I know, or at least this was what was done in the past. You got the walkie talkies on during games. Is that is that still a thing? And then also the bags are lined up in a very like straight line, very proper. It just exudes a, a team and a culture that shows preparedness and just attention to detail. So are those things that you did on purpose for the team culture? The bag thing actually came from one of the players. They they came from, I think, basketball, where that was like a thing that everyone lined up all their things. It's like you're showing respect for, for your teammates in the game by setting everything up properly. So it just started at the beginning. It also started because I think a lot of players had the same type of bag. So it looked kind of cool to have all the bags next to each other. And then it went to like water bottles too. So it was like all the bags and all the water bottles. 
And actually, it sort of brought a sense of like, when you're at the game and at the field, you're here to do a job. It brought like a next level, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I did notice that. And it was it was really cool when I saw it. I was like, wow. Yeah, we've continued doing that because everyone like it just makes you like when the bags are all askew now, you everyone is sort of a, a feeling askew. We also tried at one point a box. You know how the express the expression is something along the lines of uh, when when you come when you come to play, right? Like leave everything outside of the field, outside of the field. So we actually brought a box, and like you would write down like these are the things that I'm carrying that I don't want to be carrying during this game, and you'd put it in the box. Didn't last super long. I think it was maybe too lengthy, but the idea, you know, was sort of we wanted to like create something physical that you could do that would you know relieve you of that okay i'm not going to worry about like my dog that's sick at home right now i'm here to focus on this for the next two hours the walkie talkies thing yeah we really we actually stole that from riot because when we went to worlds in 2018 the riot coaches had it and we thought it was awesome i don't know if it's copyrighted so i think it's okay that you uh took it there allison We loved it so much that we we did it as, like, our players actually bought that for us as a joke. But we thought it was hilarious and we wanted to keep it. It's not actually very effective. I think uh, that it doesn't work super well. But It looks cool, though. It's pretty fun. And, and, the, and it looks cool and the teams really love it. I mean, one other thing that we do is the coaches always come out dressed in something special for finals. In 2018, we were wearing ties. And uh, 2019, we we got these, it was so cold, we got jackets that all matched. So we just try to do something special for the players that that shows that, like, we're taking these finals really seriously. It's fun. And are there any other aspects of the team culture you want to maybe share about that maybe you or the other coaches have implemented that you've seen to be really successful? I think our most successful, I mean, this could be argued by the players, maybe, but team culture thing is that we have created a situation where it's okay to make mistakes. I think a lot of athletes, when they get to a higher level, you know, if they didn't learn it in a different sport, they, they don't understand that failure is okay. And that's where you learn and that's how, you know, it's uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. You don't, you know, especially women are expected not to make mistakes. So we get a lot of players, less now, but at the beginning we get a lot of players that are very rigid and I need you to tell me exactly what I need to do so that I don't make any mistakes. I need you to tell me what to do, what cut to make when, who am I following um, so that I don't make a mistake so it's not my fault, right? Um, which doesn't really... In my opinion, I think the coaches that I coach is the pain. It's a dynamic game. You're never going to replicate the same scenario two times. No matter how many times you run a play, the defense is always going to be slightly different. The, you know, the wind is going to be different. The rain or the who knows what it is. It's going to be super hot. Someone twists their ankle, whatever. You have to be adaptable and dynamic. And so it took probably about a year, the first season of Iris, to, to get players away from the idea of like everything has to be structured and rigid and I only can I'm allowed to do these things to and that was a little bit how the previous coach coached nothing to take away from that I mean it could be very successful but on a short-term basis I think but over time to play at like the highest levels against teams that you've never seen before or you know you watch them in game tape but it's not the same as like competing against them which is what happens when you go to USAUs you can watch all the game tape you want but it's not the same as playing against these teams and we don't get that many opportunities to play against them. You have to be adaptable because they're going to take away whatever your game plan is, at least for the first five seconds. So if you only know I cut after this person in the order, you're not going to succeed super well over the longer term. So we wanted to basically build adaptable players that you know would have a better chance of making a world games team eventually. Or, you know, playing on TC because they fit anywhere and they're able to play different styles and methods. And, you know, they know, they understand intuitively instead of like, tell me what to do. They intuitively make those decisions that, you know, every coach is like, ah, yes, I I love this player because of this. So I think that in terms of team culture had to start with, it's okay to make mistakes. You know, you're going to take a chance. It's okay. Sure, there are some times where, you know, maybe... 
on a universe point, you're, you're less likely to be, you know, encouraged to make a lot of mistakes. But there's a learning process and everyone has to be able to have that opportunity to learn and try and fail. And that's okay to fail. Yeah, the growth mindset aspect. I uh, love you sharing that. And so we're going to go into the archives here for you as a player. We're going to look back at some memorable games. So can you share with the audience some of the games that you've really enjoyed playing in as a player? I think my first time ever attending Worlds, that was in 1999. I was a young. I was young. That was the first time that I ever got to experience world competition. And it was just so cool to play against teams from different countries. And, you know, I had played lots of sports, as I said, growing up, but I never traveled the world to do it. And this was in Scotland, never been to Scotland. And, you know, seeing the Japanese team play in a totally different style and, and various European teams, like that was just the whole experience of being there just lit a fire and I want to do this again. My favorite ever game to play in was probably also the game that I, I don't think I played super well because I was actually, as I said earlier, right, where you're, you know, focused on the game and you want to win all those things. I was not particularly focused on the game because it was 2014 when we were playing the finals against the U.S. We had lost to them earlier in the tournament. The other team was made up of players that I had played with the year before at U.S. Masters. So it was like everybody on the field was my friend, essentially, um, and or my teammate or former teammate. That was going to be my last game. So I was unable, like there were just tears at the right behind my eyes the entire game. And the player, Guilain, who I mentioned earlier, she was calling the line that she kept, towards the end of the game, she kept putting me on because she wanted me to be on for the last point of my career. She wanted me to be on that point where we scored and won. But we took a long time to score and win. So there were several points where I kept going back on and we kept on scoring. You're getting tired out there. <laughs> So it wasn't my best game. I mean, the first half, I think, that was quite good. But after that, I, it was just the, the emotions were taking over and I could not perform to my maximum. Nonetheless, we won a gold medal at the World Championships. And this was like a team that we had built basically out of like a, a bunch of players who had played together for years and years and years. And then some players who had never played like either competitive or never played women's before, but they had joined us in this let's get women's masters going the year before in 2013. And so we we made a rule that we were going to take, we didn't, we didn't stack our team. We just took the players that came with us to CUCs the year before. And then whoever couldn't come, we added some extra players. But we didn't like gut our team and stack it based on uh, we want to go win the world championships. It was... Everybody who came to play with us in 2013, you have a spot if you want it. And so this team that was made up of not super experienced athletes, I mean, yes, we had some experienced athletes, you know, won a world championship, won a gold medal. And it was incredible and amazing. It was 100% a team effort. So that was definitely my favorite game of all time. And also the worst because I was retiring, even though I only lasted two months. (laughs) In terms of uh, now we're going to go to something maybe not so pleasant, your least favorite game that you've played in, what would you say is uh, the least favorite game you've ever played in? Well, I could talk about the funniest game I ever played in. There used to be a tournament in Chicago that was like the warm-up for USA Youth Fall Series called Tuna. And Chicago is known as the Windy City, right? So when you were playing there... And you could just see this storm like coming across the field and we were playing zone and we were in upwind downwind end zone. And basically both teams could not make a three foot pass. So it's essentially like you're like right on the end zone line. And like as an offense, you're attacking upfield, you would make a two foot pass and then there would be a drop. And then the, the team going the other direction would make a two foot pass and there would be a drop. And then the, the storm is coming and the wind is blowing and, the, and it was just probably 15 minutes of stuck in this tiny corner. Nothing was happening. And then, of course, there was lightning and the game was over. But that was definitely the funniest because we were all just in hysterics because you're on the field basically unable to do anything. Score, not score, throw a pass, draw, like no one could do it. It was hilarious. Reminiscent, actually, of playing against traffic in 2019, although I think in Chicago it was worse. Some other games that I haven't super enjoyed have just been when the spirit wasn't great in that the the competition got too heated 
and it was, you know, uh, most players just wanted to play the game, but some players got wrapped up in the, the other team is cheating or they're making bad calls and, and you're spiraling and unable to pull people out of it. And that was pretty tough. I had a couple of those at various world championships that looking back, I, I wish I, I had known more in order to be able to stop what was happening earlier. Yeah, I definitely understand that being part of uh, some chippy games where it's not enjoyable for necessarily some of the people even on the sidelines just watching. They just want the game to keep going. So definitely understand that. But we're going to move to our last segment here, Rapid Fire. We're going to do some related to Ultimate, Allison. So we're going to start off with Flick or Backhand. I'm a lefty, so Backhand. Hammer or Scuba? Never a Scuba. Would you rather drop a pole or drop a catch in the end zone? Drop a catch in the end zone because you have the whole field to go back and get it back, get your D back. I have dropped several pulls. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. Yeah, I think many people will attest to having that happen. So I think it's not as uncommon as people think. Would you rather win five silver medals at Nationals or one gold medal? Well, technically you're losing if you're uh, winning a silver medal. So I'm going to say one gold. Should Ultimate be renamed? To what? Like, do you like the name Ultimate? Should they change the name or they just should they just keep it at this point? I mean, I think it's too late to change it now. It's been since the 70s, right, that we've been calling it Ultimate. Does it deserve that name? I think a lot of people would argue yes. I'm not convinced that it is necessarily the Ultimate Sport, but it is definitely my favorite sport. And uh, do you think Ultimate should be the Olympics? It's a loaded question. I think that if we're able to maintain the spirit of the sport and have it played mixed in the Olympics, it would be pretty cool. Like six on six, though, mixed. Six on six. I would definitely want the gender balance to be there. And... To showcase that, you know, at, at the Olympic level, you can have a mixed sport played in, in such an athletic and dynamic way that that will, you know, inspire kids for generations to want to play. I mean, that's what that's what the amazing thing about the Olympics is, right? It, it, all those kids who watch it when they're little, go, I want to do that one day. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think that ultimate is, is going to be this incredible sport for every single kid, but. The fact that so many kids don't get any opportunities to play sports. You know, Ultimate is a pretty easy access sport. You know, when it comes down to it, you can just go out and throw and all you need is a Frisbee. It would be great if more kids had access to being able to play. For sure. And you mentioned uh, some windy games earlier uh, in the last segment. So do you think Ultimate should have a weighted disc for play when it's in heavy wind? I think that, yeah, you just got to suck it up. It's it's hard to play ultimate with varying wind conditions or rain conditions. I mean, if you want to watch a very entertaining weather game, go back to our 2016 finals where it rained, was sunny, rained, was sunny, rained, was sunny like 16 times during the game. I mean, we all had a conversation before we started about do we wear gloves or do we not wear gloves? Because once you start the game, you're not going to switch. And your gloves get wet, but it's better than not having gloves at all when it starts to pour. So we're going to move into some non-ultimate questions here. I'm going to give you a chance to share a meal with three people in the course of human history. They can be living or brought back from the dead. So you got to pick uh, three. I'm going to pick Jane Austen. And I'm going to pick John Wooden. Great legendary coach, UCLA. Love love his philosophy, so I would really like to have a good chat with him. I was going to say Greta Thunberg. I would say that she would probably provide a lot of interesting dinner conversation. And, you know, bringing some youth perspective, it would be uh, it would be nice to talk to her and see, you know what she thinks about the world and life and her realism would be useful. Yeah. You got, you got a little different mix of views there. That's good. 
And uh, I'm going to give you a chance to now put on a concert in your backyard. I'm not sure if you have a nice backyard in Montreal, but if you don't, pretend you have a huge one. <laughs> and uh, you're allowed to book any band or artist in the world, living or dead, of course, again. You're allowed to pick three and the order in which they play. Okay, well, Paul Simon in the Graceland years is the headliner. Because Graceland is the best album of all time. I think Blue Rodeo as the opening band, maybe. Gotta get some Canadian in there. And this would be for my husband, Queen. Because my kids and my husband would die if Queen played. If Queen showed up in your backyard, that'd be pretty cool. They would they would just die. Yeah. So there we go. Blue Rodeo, Queen, and Paul Simon in the Graceland Europe. Nice. And uh, last question here. You can't choose ultimate for this answer. So I'm going to give you all the talent in the world. you got to pick another sport to play and the position or organization you'd be a part of. Or it could be an individual sport like playing tennis at Wimbledon, for example. Uh, no, it would definitely be a team sport. Spoken like a true team sport athlete. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, in Quebec, there's not a lot of field hockey. But I think that if in another life, if I had been in a place where there was an opportunity to play field hockey, I think that I would have really enjoyed that. Maybe not the skirt so much, but, you know, team sport aspect. Where would I have played? I don't know. I always played uh, center half in soccer. So the one, that go- the one that has to run back and forth, play D and O, I think that's where I would play. That's awesome. And so, Allison, that actually concludes our show for today. So if our audience wants to find out more about you and what you do, about the team you coach for, maybe some of the games you played or coached in, where can they find all that stuff online? That's a good question. Um, I mean, on Facebook or Instagram, Iris has um, their accounts. Um, team Canada stuff is on Ultimate Canada. I think all, pretty much all the world's games are around somewhere, but I don't know where they are offhand. So I'll leave some of the video game links there in the show description so if you want to check that out you can uh, feel free to do so so allison once again thank you for coming on the podcast today do appreciate it thank you for having me it was a pleasure thanks for listening keep an eye out for the next episode where i interview charlie eisenhood founder and editor-in-chief for ulti world hear about his story of playing ultimate high school and college and what led to him founding ulti world get a behind the scenes look at the beginnings and growth of the largest media company dedicated to ultimate as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports. You can see some of my commenting highlights on YouTube at Juan and only sports. And you can reach me by email at theo.juan6 at gmail.com. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.